Well, it is not hyperbole to say that America is in crisis. Uh, that comes from Americans. A study's been done for the last 10 years asking Americans, what do you think about incivility in our country? And it just came out the results. Think about this. In a time that Americans don't agree on anything, 98% of us will say that incivility is a major issue in our country that threatens the fabric of our country. 67% of Americans say incivility is at crisis levels in our country, and 42% say, I don't feel safe sharing my perspective publicly. So welcome to America in the argument culture. That's a phrase from Georgetown linguist Deborah Tannen. We are in the argument culture. Now here's the million dollar question. Are Christian communicators different? Like when we step in and talk about issues that America needs to talk about, are we any different in how we approach it? Are we different in content? Or are we different in how we actually communicate with each other? I wish we had time to really break that down to get your thoughts of what should distinguish us, what should be different about Christian communicators, because we have opinions, biblical opinions, of what we think should be done in this country, but what should separate us from other people? Well, Jesus himself said, I will tell you who the sons of God are, they are the peacemakers. Peter, preparing the early church for Nero's persecution, in 2 Peter 3.9 says, when insulted, I do not want you to insult in return. Rather, I want you to give a blessing. You know, Sigmund Freud rejected Christianity because of statements like that. Freud said, if you did that, if you blessed for an insult or turned the other cheek, you would be walked on. And I just simply won't be walked on. We are supposed to be different. We are supposed to tell the truth, but we're always supposed to do it in love. So if you were the director of the Winsome Conviction Project, and you were just starting, where do you start? Like, what's the first thing you try to do during today's argument culture? Well, thank goodness for C.S. Lewis, right? Monica is probably laughing right now. I, I quote Lewis all the time in my classes. I just think he's brilliant. So Lewis had a quote that I think would be a good place for us to focus on. Lewis said, life is made up of first things and second things. Get the first things in place, the second things follow. Now, what did Lewis mean by that? Let me give you my two cents. How many of you are the youngest in your family of origin? Raise your hand. How many of you just have older brothers? Keep your hand up. Okay, that's me. I have older brothers, I'm the youngest. When you are the youngest and you have two older brothers, you're the test dummy of life, <laughs> right? Your parents think, uh, they think of things, your brothers, and then you just do it because you're the youngest. So my middle brother, Ken, came home one day. He had bought some vampire blood in a bottle. Think of that. What sick toy manufacturer thought this was a good idea? Let's take fake blood put it in a bottle and sell it to kids, okay? So my brother grabbed me, we go to the back room, our bedroom, he said, listen, this is what we're gonna do. I'm gonna take the dresser, I'm gonna lean it back, I'm gonna shove it against the wall, it's gonna make a huge noise. You lay on the ground, blood will come out of your ears, your nose, your eyes, mom will come in, this will be really funny. <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay, I'm the youngest. He makes a loud noise, I'm, he's sa I'm saturated in blood. 
Ken is totally overdone it. Now that I'm a parent, this is like a 911 nightmare. My mom, who's a very timid woman, comes into the bedroom. I am saturated in blood. She goes, Tim, Tim. And I'm like, Mom, look, it's fake. And my timid mother was like, I'll give you fake. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Ken backed up, got on a bus. We didn't see him for a year. He literally left the state. I could tell you story after story about three meal hot boys. We were playing, uh, my mom said no more swimming. We lived in East Detroit. So we were throwing the Frisbee across a pool. The Frisbee hit the water, sank. We're not rocket scientists. We grabbed these poles. We're trying to get the Frisbee, not realizing that the poles are jagged on the edges. We are ripping the liner every time we try to get the Frisbee. My dad comes home working a double shift at General Motors, and just as he parks, the pool collapses. We flooded three backyards. As he is walking up our driveway, water is rushing past him. Small animals are going past him. He, totally true story. He walks in the back. I couldn't even let go of the pole. I could not let go of the pole. I was like... <laughs> He took all three of us, sat us down, and said, look, we're going to do something. August 11th, we're going to do something. You can't argue about it. This is not a conversation. You're all going to go off for football because I'm going to knock the goofy out of each one of you, okay? So we did that. We, we uh, did wind sprints in the backyard. We started lifting weights. What we ate, my brother Bob went on to play college football at Ferris State University. Football became the first thing. It became the orienting principle by which everything else came out of that. Now, when we read the scriptures, what do we get when it comes to that? It'd be fascinating to read the scriptures and say, what are the first things when it comes to God? But then second, what are the first things when it comes to each other? Now, we could ask that us and non-Christians. That's a book me and the co-director wrote called Winsome Persuasion. How do we talk to non-Christians? But then what would be the first thing when it comes to talking to each other? And that's the book that I actually brought. It's out there called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. Where does Paul start? He's talking to a young church at Ephesus. And he says, I want you to do something. Because, right, this is in the shadow of Artemis, this great god and now they're trying to start a church in the shadow of Artemis worship. He says, here's what I want you to do, church at Ephesus. Here is the first thing to do with your relationship with God and with your relationship to other people. So let's read what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 20, and this is what he says. He prays for us so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Don't miss it. I want you to be rooted and grounded in Jesus' love. Rooted and grounded. He mixes two metaphors. Rooted, agriculture, like a tree. Grounded, like uh, architecture, building a building. But he says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus. If we're rooted and grounded in Jesus' love, it's going to change how we talk to God. It's going to change how we talk to non-Christians. It's going to change how we talk to fellow believers. We have to be rooted and grounded. But don't miss this one really interesting word. He says that you may comprehend. Now, some of your translations may say grasp. 
But this is an interesting Greek word. It means not just intellectually. Paul says, I don't want you just to know this intellectually. Now, he's already tipped his hand in chapter 1 where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, right? Heart in Hebrew means all of us. So Paul is saying, I don't want you to do what we do in Western education. When I have a class in Western education, how do I know if they know it? How do I assess how my class has handled the material, right? I give them a test. I have them um, write an essay response, multiple choice, true, false, matching. Paul says, okay, that's good, I guess, to have an intellectual understanding of a topic, but I want it to go much more deep than that. I want you to comprehend in a way that it actually changes how you live your life. So let's imagine this. Let's imagine that there was a very interesting lottery that you happened to win, and you won it. The woman right there in glasses, long hair, black top. What's your name? What is it? Aaron, okay, Aaron, you just won a million dollars. Awesome, right? This is just an illustration. Uh, <laughs> won a million dollars, but there's one little caveat with it. You have to spend it in a year, and you must spend a portion of it every day so that at the end of a year, uh, you've spent one million dollars. Aaron, are you good at math? Do you know offhand what this would be? I was a theater major. I had to, I had to actually look it up. Do you know how much you would have to spend a day to spend a million in a year? How much? Oh, good night. We should, we should go shopping together. That's way too much. We'd be broken. Okay, so if I did this correctly, you, Aaron, would have to spend $2,739.73 per day to spend it in one year. Now, do you like coffee? Oh, I like coffee as well. Okay. Oh, you have it with you. That's so awesome. All right. So Aaron and I, afterwards, we go to a coffee shop. And we walk in. We're both just kind of standing there. And, and we're just talking about how much we love coffee. I love vanilla lattes. And we're talking about that. And we love with a scone. Come on. That's like the perfect day. Okay. We're sitting there. But Aaron goes, ah, but you know, I, I'm, I'm probably just going to get coffee. And maybe not a flavored one because we're kind of watching our budget. I'd be like, Aaron... Aaron, you need to spend $2,739.73. And you're like, well, yeah, I know, but I just... Aaron, you have not comprehended what you just won. Aaron, you could buy everybody coffee, right? You could turn around. I wouldn't just love to do that. On me, coffee and scones. We just love to do that, Right? Aaron's not comprehended it. She knows it because the organizers of it met with her and said, listen, you and your family, you've won a million dollars, but you've got to spend this. That's the one condition every single day. Paul would say, Aaron knows it. She's not comprehended it. That's what Paul's saying. I don't want this just to be an intellectual exercise. You need to be rooted and grounded in Jesus's love to the extent it changes how you treat other people. It changes how you view other people. That's what Paul's trying to get at today. I don't just want this to be a test intellectually. I want it to actually change you. So if we are to be rooted and grounded in Jesus's love, then Paul goes on to explain what that love actually looks like. So let's go to stay within Ephesians, but let's go to chapter 1. 
And Paul is about to explain what this love actually looked like. So, in verse 7 of chapter 1, he says this, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. It cost Jesus to reconcile us. It cost him desperately. Artemis didn't do anything. Artemis, only thing Artemis does is command your sacrifice. Artemis isn't sacrificing for anybody. Jesus came to planet Earth, and through his blood, you have redemption. But that was costly. It cost God something to redeem us, and that was the blood of Jesus Christ. We just did a wonderful symbolic action of that. You drank the wine, the juice that represented his blood, and you ate the wafer that represented the breaking of his body. What a great thing to do to remind us that Jesus thought you were worth it to die for you. Now, the forgiveness of your trespasses, right? Past, present, future. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. So when he forgave you, it is done. Past, present, future. I tell my Biola students, Biola stands for the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles, right? I tell my Biola students, so you're not going to get more of Jesus' love. You're not going to ever get more of his forgiveness. You have everything right now. So go be the best Christian you can possibly be. Guess what? His love didn't increase or decrease. Conversely, go be a horrible Christian, right? Go walk out of Biola University and just um, don't do neighbor love. Look at pornography. Go do all this stuff. Guess what? His love didn't decrease one iota. Because it's not based on what you do. It's based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he says this. This is, my, this is why this is my favorite passage of the New Testament. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, that word lavish is interesting. He actually uses an accounting term that means to exceed a number. That's what lavish means. Okay, let me give you a couple illustrations of this. I didn't do it here. I should have asked Danny, but I didn't do it. Uh, when I speak for crew, I was on crew staff for 20 years, Campus Crusade for Christ. I speak at Christmas conferences, college students. So I'm at this one conference in Chicago, and I told the organizers, would you give me uh, $100 in $5 bills? I'm going, to give them, I'm going to give it away to a student. I think it'll be a great illustration. They were like, yeah, awesome. So I have with me $100 in $5 bills. So I asked college students who likes coffee. A guy named Mark raises his hand. I said, Mark, come up here real quick. He comes up on stage. I said, Mark, I love coffee too. What do you like? He told me his favorite drink. I said, here's $5. Go get a coffee on me. He goes, what? Get out of here. I go, no, $5, go. He walks back to his seat. I said, okay, that was generous. That's not lavish. That's not lavished. I said, Mark, come back up. Mark comes back up. I said, Mark, you've got to have something with the coffee, right? What do you like? He goes, I like biscotti. I go, here's another $5 bill, man. Go get some biscotti. Now he starts to walk. Now I said, Mark, come back up. Now people are laughing. I said, come back up. Do you, are you with roommates here at the conference? Yeah. They say we're only supposed to have four. We have eight in our room. I'm like, okay, come here, come here, come here. Your roommates like coffee. I start handing them $5 bills. Now he's going, get out of here. No way. I can't. No, get out of here. I go, Mark, Mark. Right? That's lavished. Lavish means God exceeds a number. Now let me tell you why this is incredibly important. One of the issues I deal with is pornography. 
I often get asked to speak on pornography, okay? Talk about Satan's great weapon. By the way, ladies, you're catching the men. You're catching, this is not a male epidemic anymore. It is an epidemic among men and women, okay? The pornification of America is an amazing study, okay? So, men are often told, and by Satan, you can't come back to God, right? You've gone too far. You promised your wife, your family, and now you did it again. You can't come back, right? They're shame-based, and a lot of men just leave the faith, okay? Same with ladies. Here's what I say to men, and it actually got me in trouble at a couple conferences. I say to men, give me a number that God gives up on you. Give me a number. Give me a number. How many times can you look at porn and God goes, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with you. You've promised so many times I'm done with you. One guy actually said 10,000 times. I said, okay, what does lavish mean? To exceed a number, right? You can't exhaust the grace of Jesus. It is always there. Whatever sin you do as a believer, lavished grace is there. Now, I was leading a Bible study of high school basketball players because my kids play basketball. Graydon raises his hand and says, well, then we can do whatever we want. And I said, Graydon, I think you're getting it. You're getting, this is what Paul says, right? Paul says in Romans, so the response to him was, well, then we can sin and do whatever we want. He goes, well, yeah, well, sin is, grace is even more. So I said, Graydon, I'm going to agree with you technically that you can do whatever you want, but is that the response you give to God? For his generous love and forgiveness and grace, that's your response? I'd rather your response be, I'm so thankful that Jesus does this. Now I'm going to give that love and give it to other people. Right? That's what he says in Colossians. Paul, to the extent that you were forgiven, forgive other people. To the extent that you were loved, loved other people. Then he gets radical. When your enemy is hungry, I want you to feed him. When your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Why? Because you were an enemy of God, Romans chapter 5, but God, so I love that phrase, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. When you were at your worst, Jesus died for you. Now, Paul says, take that lavished grace and give it to non-Christians, but also give it to Christians. Now, I want to do a quick test to see where we're at when it comes to this. Okay, so I just, I became a Christian through karate. I grew up in a non-Christian home, never went to church. Uh, there was a guy who had a ministry, Michael Crane's Karate for Christ. Don't you love that? Jiu-Jitsu for Jesus. I love that. Uh, so I, that's how I became a Christian, was through karate. Then I kind of gave it up, played football, wrestled. And so it's been my dream to always go back and get my black belt. So just a year ago, after failing twice, I finally got my black belt in Shaolin Kung Fu. Okay, so now I teach uh, self-defense at domestic violence shelters in Orange County. My wife and I are literally heading off to Congo, uh, the rape capital of the world, to work in safe houses. I say to my wife, don't tell me I never take you anywhere, okay? Um, She's like, Cabo, Congo, if you say it fast enough, it's kind of the same. Um, But we have a saying from the founder that I think is brilliant. Spirit precedes technique. What he means by that is I can teach you to block, punch, kick, but if you don't have a warrior spirit, it doesn't matter. 
So we've kind of Christianized that at the Winsome Conviction Project. We say if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then technique does not matter, right? Because it, it's not going to work, right? The minute that issue gets brought up, your nose is going to get out of whack, and you're going to be like all of us. You're just going to go to DEFCON 1 on this issue. And we've worked with churches that that's happened, shouting matches on a Sunday morning. Right? Because the pastor said something from the pulpit and somebody had to respond. Baylor University, that's why we were brought into Baylor. During chapel, a woman of color said something and was shouted down by a white student. So, right? When your emotions get involved, we tend to throw out technique. But everybody wants technique. Right? When we get invited in, they're all like, hey, give us five ways to resolve conflict, ten ways to do that. And we're like, hey, we're willing to do that, but spirit precedes technique. We need to be rooted and grounded in Jesus, or this will never work when we try to talk about critical race theory, the election, whether we should wear masks, whether we should meet in person, whether the election was fraudulent. Right? All those kind of things, man. We go to DEFCON 1 pretty quickly. So spirit has to proceed technique. Today we're getting spirit. Next week I filmed something yesterday. We'll get the technique. A four-part strategy rooted in the book of Proverbs that I, I uh, built in my master's thesis. That's kind of what's represented with the book out there, Winsome Conviction. But we have a saying in uh, Kung Fu that's really interesting. Sparring is the proving ground. Sparring is, right? You can do techniques all day long. Mike Tyson said everybody looks good hitting a bag, right? But when you get into a sparring match with a black belt, now the instructor looks at you and knows whether you know what you're doing, right? So here's my question to us as Christians. Where is the sparring that we do to know if we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? I think the sparring is when we have disagreements with each other. With fellow believers, how are we doing speaking truth in love? How are we doing giving a blessing for an insult? How are we doing turning the other cheek? Because remember, we are to comprehend this. Comprehend it in such a way that it changes our behavior. So I like to quote this proverb. It's so convicting. Proverbs 15, 1 to 2. A gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We can know that, but when you spar, do you throw it out the window in a heartbeat, right? Do you meet a harsh word with a harsh word? Do you meet an insult with an insult? So I'm gonna bring you up to speed on one of my recent sparring matches that was a diagnostic. So it's so hard to be the winsome conviction guy. It's so hard to be the communication guy, because you have to live it out. And I'm just like you. There's topics I don't do well in. So Monica can attest to this. I am a Christian feminist. Now, I, I will clarify that all day long, but feminism is in three waves, right? The first wave of feminism, ladies, you didn't have the right to vote in this country. Many of you did not have the right to education. And many of you were viewed as being less than. Schopenhauer, one of the great uh, German philosophers, said this about women. Ladies, you are great at being teachers because you are, in fact, an adult child. That's why you're so good with kids. And you're in the shadow of the true human being who is the man. Right? That's the first wave of feminism. 
Ladies, you didn't have much voice in this country, and women fought to get a political voice. Why? Because you wanted to speak out against slavery. You wanted to uh, speak out against drinking and unbiblical actions, the temperance movement, but then realized, I have no political voice. Nobody ever listens to me. That's why I need to get a political voice. So I think for sure Jesus is a first-wave feminist. I wrote an essay. It's going to come out in a book. It's kind of controversial, but I, I think once you understand first-wave feminism, it is clear he's a first-wave feminist. The way he interacts with women is unbelievable in the New Testament, countercultural, and James picks up on it because you ask James, what is true religion in the sight of God? Earliest New Testament book we have, James says this, caring for orphans and widows in distress. First wave of feminism. So I, I'm, I'm at this meeting getting trained, uh, and they bring in a speaker via Zoom, and he is going to uh, speak to us. It's a very famous organization. I'm not going to mention it by name. He's the new president of it, and we're here for training. We, we uh, speak at marriage conferences, and, and we're all getting additional training, okay? He says this statement. He said, okay, let's talk about feminism real quick, which I think is one of the major challenges to the church today. And, and you know that feminism started in the 1960s out of the sexual revolution because women wanted the freedom to sleep with whomever they wanted. My wife literally puts her hand on my knee and squeezes my knee. I am like, what? What? Now, he is wrong factually. That, that is, the second wave of feminism would have been the 1960s, right? And for sure, women were arguing for sexual expression in the 1960s. For sure, that's true. But to say it started in the 1960s, what about Alice Paul, Susan B. Anthony, the right to vote in this country? Right? I would, oh my word, I was at DEFCON 1 in a heartbeat. Now, don't you hate it when the Holy Spirit shows up? Don't you hate it? I'm sitting there, Mr. Winsome Conviction, and I'm ready to go. There's a Q&A time coming up. I knew there was a Q&A time. I'm, re I'm so ready to go. Um, and the Holy Spirit shows up and literally brings to mind that verse. A gentle word and a harsh word. Which are you going to pick? And I wanted to say to the Holy Spirit, seriously, I'm like the only thing you got going on today? Are there not more important things? Than, like, how's the second coming coming? You know what I mean? It's like... But guys, I had to make a decision right in that moment. And I was hopped up. I'm, we do such damage when we caricature complex thoughts. Listen, critical race theory, say what you want about critical race theory. It is a complex system of thought. Is there good things about it? My opinion is absolutely there's good things about critical race theory. Does it go off the rails and become unbiblical? Absolutely it goes off the rails, in my opinion. But there's an awful lot of good to it that can be used by the church as we deal with racial issues. Is postmodernism complex? Yes. Is Buddhism complex? Very complex. Is Islam complex? Is the Quran complex? Absolutely. But as Christians, we do what really bugs us. 
We simplify and caricature, which we ought to know better because that happens to us all the time. We get caricatured. When I was in grad school, a master's and a PhD at a secular university, it, we got caricatured all the time, conservative Christians, and it drove me crazy. Let's not do that. Let's be better than that. Can you disagree with the person's perspective? Yeah, but know what you're talking about. Do the homework beforehand. So I'm sitting there wrestling with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the leader of the group that I'm part of just happens to be sitting next to me. I looked at him and I said, do I have a green light? He said, you always have a green light. So here comes the microphone. I get the microphone, I go, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, idiot. No, I did not say that audibly. I did not say that. And I'm wrestling with the Holy Spirit. And I said, um, I appreciate you taking time to be with us. Um, and by the way, he said a lot of great things. I don't want to color what he said, but he got off on this tangent, and factually, he's wrong, and charitably, he's wrong. And so I just said, I want to, I want to just maybe ask a clarifying question about your comment about the 1960s and feminism coming out of the sexual revolution. He goes, yeah, sure, go ahead. I said, well, I was just wondering, where does Alice Paul fit into that? Susan B. Anthony, the temperance movement, the abolition movement, that was really started by Christian feminists. He immediately backtracks. Now, to his credit, he did that. He, he went, okay, kind of like, doggone it, I just got fact-checked, okay? Yes, nope, you're right, you're right. I was trying to simplify it. Simplify it. How is that simple? I, I said, because to be honest, it's concerning to me that, that many of my fellow friends here don't study feminism the way that I do, and so they might walk out of here and think that all women wanted was to be able to sleep with whomever they wanted coming out of the 1960s. And he said, you're right. You're right. Um, yes. And I said, I, in just fairness to the Christian feminists that I'm aware of, he goes, no, I, no, good, good, good. Then at that point, I wanted to go for the dagger. I just wanted to go, and you should resign. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just wanted to go. My sweet wife, hand came back, hand came back. And then I really felt the Holy Spirit say, enough, enough. And I said, so th thank you for entertaining my question and my concern. He said, no, my pleasure. And I moved on. Then I had a great opportunity. A bunch of people approached me and said, have you ever written on this? And I literally was finishing the essay, Jesus the Feminist. I said, I I'll send you a rough copy of it. I think it just kind of lets Now listen, would Jesus disagree with parts of the second wave feminism? Absolutely he would. Jesus is unapologetically pro-life. I believe Jesus is unapologetically pro-traditional marriage. All of that is brought into question in parts of the second wave. Third wave is what we usually think about, the radical third wave of feminism, is when most Christians say feminism, they mean the radical third wave, and they ignore the first two waves. Okay? So for me, that was my sparring moment. I think I did okay. My wife, after, my wife afterwards, who often is the Holy Spirit in my life, <laughs> 
said to me, you did well, you did well. And, and, and I, I, I appreciated that because she, because she said to me, because I know what you wanted to say. Think about my sweet wife just for a second. Uh, I was on the debate team in college and I did stand-up comedy in clubs. That's a horrible combination. In a marital disagreement, that is a horrible com uh, combination. So she knew that this guy had tripped a wire. Um, so I want to ask you to pay attention to the sparring moments that are going to happen in the next couple months. When this church starts to wrestle with issues that they need to wrestle with. Listen, race is a defining issue in the identity of this country. It is a defining issue. Uh, America is an amazing place when I get to travel overseas. But we have issues we've never fully resolved. And what critical race theory does is it reminds us of some very uncomfortable things. Does it go too far? I think it does. But we need to have the race conversation. We need to have the sexuality conversation. We need to make peace with the election. The election was deeply divisive at Biola universities. One of the men I respect the most would say publicly is a sin not to vote for President Trump. And I am just not in that camp. So we had to work through it. Now, the reason we could work through it is he knows how much I respect him. He's one of my mentors. And I love him, and he absolutely knows that. So we, were, we could get through it, even though we disagree with each other on, the, on this issue. See what Paul's saying? If a relationship is rooted and grounded in love, you can say some really hard things to each other. Right? So what Satan does is he works on the love part. Because now you start to think, I'm not so sure I love that person, nor am I sure that they love me. I'm not so sure that person respects me, and I don't respect that person. And Satan's like, awesome. I need to break their unity. Because if I break their unity, then I can pick them off one by one. One of the greatest strategies of Satan, we get a glimpse of that in the garden, Right? Now, by the way, interesting what most Hebrew scholars believe about the garden. Remember, there's that interesting phrase, don't miss it, that when Eve sins, she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. Most Hebrew New Testament scholars believe Adam was fully present during the tempting. Satan was able to psychologically separate the two. So I don't care if you're sitting in a, here, you could be a million miles away from each other because Satan has psychologically divided you. We, were, we worked with the church where some uh, parishioners wanted to put up on the side of their building Black Lives Matter, right? And other group countered and said, fine, so long as we have a banner that says Blue Lives Matter. And it almost divided the church. People were furious with each other because both camps didn't want that. I want my banner, I don't want the other banner. Satan doesn't care what he uses to divide you. It is irrelevant to him. Uh, we worked with one church, almost separated over a fog machine. A fog machine. And I gotta tell you, the first time I preached there, fog is wafing past me and I'm like, this reminds me of my modeling days, you know what I mean? Why is that funny? 
Okay, so because here's what we do, and then we're going to stop. We're absolutely going to stop. We weaponize our beliefs. We weaponize them. So how in the world could a fog machine separate a church? Because that's not how you frame it, right? Because, come on, that's an easy fix. Have a contemporary service with the fog machine, have a traditional service, and you're good to go. But here's how it got framed. Is the church against worldliness? Are we, are we supposed to be against worldliness? Well, the answer to that is unequivocally yes. That fog machine represents worldliness, right? Is this a concert or is it worship? See, how we frame it determines if we're going to have a way of resolving the issue. And when we weaponize, right? Hey, that fog machine is worldliness coming into this church. And if we allow a fog machine, then who knows where this is going to go? We're stopping the fog machine, right? That can separate a church, and I'm sure Satan's going, you know how much a fog machine costs? 29 bucks. Right? It doesn't matter what it is. We have to be diligent. How are we diligent? Spirit precedes technique. So next week, you're going to get the technique, four-step process from the book of Proverbs. Today, we must do spirit. That's why I love that we had communion. We need to go before the Lord and be honest I love what C.S. Lewis says, pray what's in you, not what's supposed to be in you. And just say, I have a hard attitude towards this person. I've got a real slow burn towards one of the pastors or the leadership team or the worship team or a fellow parishioner. And that slow burn in the hands of Satan can become a foothold. So we need to put a stake in the ground. Remember what Jesus said, and then I'd close with this. Jesus said, when you're walking into this sanctuary, and you see that person, and you're just like, oh, honey, let's go sit on that side, right? I don't want to be near that person. What does Jesus say? Worship me in a different way. Remember what he said? Don't walk into the temple and give your uh, offering. Go talk to that person. Now, let me just put one little caveat on Jesus. I do have tenure. All right, one caveat on Jesus. <laughs> If we don't have a strategy for doing that, that is a recipe for disaster. If you do say, okay, I'm finally going to go talk it out with that person, and you go grab that person, and you have no strategy. Those of us who are married, you know exactly what this is like. Those of you who have teenage children, we're finally going to talk this out, and it's a nightmare. Because we didn't have a strategy and that's what the book of Proverbs is, a strategy. A word spoken in the right circumstances is like fine jewelry. Okay, so let's have the right circumstance. That's what we're going to do next week. So let me pray for us. Father, we come before you and we're humbled by the blood that was cast for us to be redeemed and have all of our sins forgiven. We do not take that lightly. Father, we're deeply loved while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And Lord, we're lavished in grace. Lavished. I pray that we would comprehend that, that we'd grasp that in a way that would change how we treat ourselves, how we treat our uh, spouses, children, family members, neighbors. And it would change the way we approach another Christ follower who we do disagree with. Let us be transformed. Let us be rooted and grounded in your love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.